monsters, madness, and magic. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I am Justin, joined as usual by my co-hosts Daniel, Angelique, and Henry. And this evening we are honored to host a very special guest, horror historian and author, critic, man of many hats, David J. Skull. David, how are you tonight, sir? Very good. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, and I'm sure we're all going to pick your brain, but you've got a new book that just dropped on September 1st, Fright Favorites, 31 Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond. Can you tell us about the book, some of the films that appear, and your reasoning behind your choices? Well, it's a book from Turner Classic Movies, who approached me last year. Uh, they've been doing holiday-themed uh, movie books with Running Press in Philadelphia, and they uh, uh, called me up and described the project, and I said, that really sounds interesting, and he started working on it about in January, and uh, here it is, published. It's a, uh, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's a uh, kind of a countdown, 31 films, uh, one pick for every day of uh, the month of Halloween, and some also runs as well, so really, we're dealing with 62 films, not not 31, <laughs> but uh, I had a lot of fun with it because I got to use a lot of research that I didn't have room for in a lot of my other books, which usually, you know, deal with uh, very broadly, you know, with the history of horror films, and there's only so much you can say about an individual film. So here I had a little, uh, little more latitude. They basically liked my choices. Uh, we, uh, uh, I accommodated some of their choices, too which is just fine. Everybody at uh, Turner and Running Press are movie fans as well. And uh, as soon as we decided, okay, this is not going to be, you know, a, a definitive encyclopedia of films, but it's kind of an entry point, especially for people who don't know too much about the genre. And I hope there's enough in the way of new anecdotes and photos you've never seen or uh, prints of photos that are better than you've, you've ever seen before. And uh, it's been getting a, a really nice response and seems to be hitting exactly the kind of uh, uh, the mix of, of uh, diehard fans, people who don't know too much about the genre but want to know more. Right. So what are, what are some of your Halloween traditions? What, what films are on your rotation yearly? Do you like to mix it up? Or? Well, people, it, it, this year is very different because usually at Halloween, people ask me, uh, what are you going to be? for uh for halloween this year and i say oh i'm going to be the most terrifying monster of them all <laughs> a talk show guest <laughs> and that has not really happened although podcasts he stepped in to uh fill the void uh no usually i'm traveling i'm um almost always tied up with something on halloween itself so i haven't thrown a halloween party of my own in uh in nearly 20 years terrifying to think oh, look at uh, this we're all getting older. Uh, but um, I, uh, I grew up with Halloween. I was you know, among the first uh, generation that really learned how to do it uh, after World War II. It was the 50s where Halloween really uh, made its mark on the map. And after the war, you know, uh, sugar rationing ended and the candy companies got into it. Uh, the, the term trick-or-treat really wasn't that... Uh, uh, used very much at all. It doesn't appear in print anywhere in America until the year 1940. And uh, then there was this big hiatus with the war. And uh, But uh, Halloween's fortunes as a big commercial holiday uh, got underway in the 50s. Um, uh, Disney got into the act uh, with 
a uh, cartoon called Trick or Treat in which Donald Duck's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, all learned how to trick or treat. And a real witch got involved, and there was a snappy little song with it. So, so all these people moving out to the suburbs in the 50s and had no social rituals of their of their own. It was a kind of a strange new wasteland. Uh, uh, picked up on Halloween, and it has been nothing but growth ever since. It's now the second biggest holiday uh, after Christmas. And if it was a gift-giving holiday, uh, it would be even more. But uh, as I tell people with my book, uh, you know, uh, Tim Burton's already showed us that Halloween is just an excuse for Christmas. So uh, even after Halloween, there may be somebody on your on your gift list who <laughs> might have fun with it. <laughs> you said yourself, now this is a very true and very cool statement that you write books that you couldn't find and that no one else has written. And I got one of my favorites here, Vampires Encounters with the Undead sitting next to me. And you've got everything in here. You got historical accounts to vampire short stories. So is the vampire the creature of the night that lured you into the dark? Did you get bitten? Is that your, the one that bit you? Yeah, yeah, really. And I, I wondered why that happened. I think I've got an answer. Uh, I was part of this generation of kids. We call ourselves monster kids and still do. And in the early, uh, late 50s and early 60s, uh, when the Universal films were being released to television for the first time, they were accompanied by uh, fan clubs and the monster magazine, of course, famous monsters of Filmland and Castle of Frankenstein. And uh, we all picked our own monsters, our favorite monsters, it seems. And most monsters are really out of control. And that certainly uh, resonates with a lot of uh, a lot of adolescent emotions and hormones and uh, all that sort of thing. But uh, Dracula was different. He was in control under all circumstance. And even though monsters didn't frighten, the Cold War did. And I was surprised when I did research for my book, The Monster Show, I went back and looked at the uh, the newspapers. And so what was happening, I knew the month that I uh, latched onto uh, Monster Magazines and, and uh, uh, the Aurora model kits for the first time. And it was October of 1962. And uh, like I said, monsters were old pals. I totally forgotten that I was terrified out of my mind about uh, being blown off, potentially blown off the face of the earth by an atomic bomb lobbed over from Cuba. And I was really stunned to see that the number one pop song on the charts during the Cuban Missile Crisis was Monster Mash by Boris <laughs> Bobby Pickett, a dance of death sung by a mad scientist. What else could be? And th this this uh, was really kind of a revelation and led to me exploring how uh, big traumas and anxieties in the culture inevitably set in motion recognizable patterns in scary entertainment. And uh, that's how that book came about. And uh, I didn't realize that 30 years later, I was still going to be doing the, these kinds of books. I thought it was really kind of a one-off, but... Uh, Monsters have uh, been very good to me in my middle and old age, I guess. What's your favorite depiction? What's your favorite vampire? Because they don't all have to be. My favorite, well, my, my favorite vampire is Dracula. And in terms of, my, I guess my, my favorite Dracula film doesn't exist because it would be cobbled together. Um, maybe somebody, I, I don't have the energy to, <laughs> to do this, but somebody who's handy with uh, video editing might want to give it a try just 
cobble together uh, a master version of Dracula from all the various film versions that adhere to the, the basic plot and just uh, scene by scene, uh, uh, dialogue by dialogue, you know, just uh, cut them all together and bounce them back and forth like ping pong. I think it would be a, be a lot of fun. Uh, they're all so different. Mm. You no, know, Dracula exists in his transformations. There isn't. He he comes out of out of folklore, out of the mm. oral tradition of folklore. Uh, Bram Stoker put him in written form for um, a brief bit, only a few decades, and then the uh, uh, the visual, the, the moving image took over, which is very very similar to the oral tradition. In that, uh, every one who retells the story adds something of their own has their own take on it. And so I stopped complaining about uh, Bram Stoker not getting his due and people, uh, you know, messing with his text. Uh, the whole point is to mess with the text. And that's how Dracula stays alive and immortal, by changing with the times and changing with uh, with each telling. I happen to my favorite, The Dead, but he's a, <laughs> of, of all the things you could grow up to be, what do you want to be? I want to be a Byron scholar. But apparently that's what he is, is a Byron scholar. And uh, so he, as you said, you, you know, take the myth and reshape it and retell it. So while Lord of the Dead isn't a Dracula story, it is telling Lord Byron, interweaving it fact with a little bit of fiction as if he were a vampire. And, and it's all because it's Byron with Polidori. It even deals with the night with Mary yeah. Shelley and Shiloh. And it, it actually mentions that evening, but the way that book is written is just brilliant. And I was, again, I mean, you've it's written true. so much I mean, about Lord, vampires, I was Lord, just curious. Yeah. No, Lord Byron has everything to do with the modern image of the vampire. Uh, and it was uh, because of his uh, his physician and traveling companion, John Polidori, wrote this story called The Vampire, in which this, uh, um, this strange nobleman who was uh, fatal to a series of women was whose name was Lord Ruthven, um, spelled Ruthven. Nobody pronounces it correctly. It's actually Ruthven. And <laughs> thank you. The, the world assumed the world assumed that uh, Byron was, you know, the real deal. And this was kind of a Romano clay. Uh, and and uh, people even thought that Byron himself had written it as a kind of a confessional thing. And he didn't. But the uh, from its first appearance in literature. The vampire departed from the vampire of Eastern European folklore, which was more or less like a, a, a zombie, you know, just a, a ravenous walking corpse, uh, usually a family member, uh, usually uh, from the peasant class. There were no aristocratic uh, uh, folkloric vampires, but uh, Byron made quite a, a splash, and the story, The Vampire, was adapted for the stage. It was made into a very, very popular opera that uh, was part of the standard repertory all through the, the 19th century. And uh, Bram Stoker turned his back on all that when he came to write Dracula. He went in a different direction. He was kind of interested in the, uh, all the anxieties that were being uh, stirred up by uh, modern science and Darwinism in particular. And so his uh, vampire was an aristocrat. He kind of threw that sop to uh, you know Byron and company but uh, he was not uh, he was not a seducer he was a hideous old man who got younger as he drank blood but he never became attractive and uh, but it was only with uh, the theater in the 20th century and with movies that uh, 
uh, producers and the public, I guess, just uh, insisted on that old aristocratic romantic vampire, you know, be resurrected. So what we have today is this strange, strange version of Dracula that Stoker himself would have trouble recognizing, but uh, uh, the public knows and recognizes all, all too well. Uh, people who've never even seen, you know, the movie Dracula with with Lugosi, uh, nonetheless, know exactly. Uh, how to do an imitation of, 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 of Lugosi. And uh, there's probably nobody who puts such a mark on the, on, on the character. Uh, he, uh, we, we can argue about whether Lugosi was a romantic vampire or not. I, asked, uh, I, I taught a course based on the Monster Show several years ago and had an almost all-female class. And I asked the women, I said, okay, you've seen Lugosi for the first time. Um, Notice that my students were too young to have even seen the Coppola Dracula the first time it came around. Hey. You want to really feel old? Damn. <laughs> well, join me here. And uh, I said, well, t- tell me, what this legendary sex appeal that Lugosi was supposed to have, what do you think? And to a woman, they all just said, ew, no. <laughs> uh, they... They found Christopher Lee sexy. They found Frank Langella, especially. And uh, yeah. I, right, Langella, really. That's, Lan- that's not, Langella no. does. <laughs> you, you, like, you like Lugosi? I like Lugosi and, and Gary well, Oldman. Can you, can you pinpoint his specific... Uh, uh, the eyes. Those eyes. His eyes are sexy. Mm. Those are sexy eyes. Yeah. <laughs> no, tell me. I. Yeah, no, it's his, it's his eyes and his... He's just got... Where he's so still when he's just... <laughs> well, he is. He's, okay, yeah. <laughs> he was great. I mean, I, I talked to somebody who uh, worked on stage with him in, in, in Dracula, and he uh, one of the frequent things he did was just to remain absolutely still, and he would stare, and he barely blinked, and then suddenly he would let one eyebrow go up, <laughs> and that would be the that would be the uh, it. It was very restrained. You know, it's got, we think of him as over the top, but. In reality, he uh, didn't have to do that much to be very effective. And uh, both, you know, he, he and Karloff, as uh, Lugosi as Dracula and Karloff as Frankenstein, at the, you know, the cusp of the talkies, the end of the silent era, the beginning of talking pictures, they were both, they had their feet in both worlds. They are both largely pantomime performances. Uh, Lugosi's got that voice, but he doesn't have that much dialogue. And the most uh, memorable scenes are, against, are again, those uh, uh, shots of him just standing and staring. The, the very first time you see him in the, in, in the crypt and the camera is pulling you toward him as if, uh, uh, you know, as if by hypnotic force. Uh, and uh, Dracula was, in fact, uh, release a silent version huh. in, instead of dialogue. So uh, I, I think that's it's a reason those two characterizations stick on our stick in our minds is because they are so they are primarily visual. They are they are images that we remember as much as uh, um, something that we hear. And of course, with Karloff, we didn't hear him at all. But they're, they're both. That's I think a reason they're both just as iconic uh, representations of silent film as. Uh, Chaplin's The Little Tramp. It's also so, good to be the first. Uh, sorry, Henry, go ahead. Yeah, no, sure. I, I don't want to cut and, off. And they're so well-known, they are just burned into the worlds of communication, advertising, and you don't have to know anything about movies to know who who these uh, creatures are. And uh, 
But us monster kids were there first. <laughs> the world has caught up with us. We knew they were important way back so, when. So, David, did you ever get a and it was it was something interesting. I had an old uh, film professor that we went through all of the uh, the original like the Bela Lugosi Dracula and all of the other monster movies. And I remember him telling me, you know, if you you know if you really enjoyed Dracula, you have to watch the Spanish version. And did you ever have you ever seen have you ever seen the one that was made on the same set with uh, with the Bela Lugosi? Yeah, I'm I'm the one who uh, went to Cuba and dug up the missing reels. It was oh. able to be restored. Oh, wow. uh, no, I, I, yeah, I was pounding the drum. I was I was beating a drum for that for a long time, and for a while it seemed like Universal wasn't going to do it, even after they had the the uh, the missing footage in in hand. The rest of the film, the original negative, the camera negative was in perfect condition, but the transitional reel from uh, Transylvania to to uh, England, where the main characters were introduced, uh, had turned to to gunk. But uh, the Cinemateca de Cuba had a complete uh, show print. It was a little battered, but uh, they were still using it. It was a safety print, probably made in the 1950s. And um, I uh, contacted them. They invited me down. I got a visa from the State Department, who controls uh, how anybody Americans can spend money. Go, uh, going to Cuba, and I spent three days down there, having um, having fun with it. And they projected it, and several times, and let let me uh, set up my camera to to uh, do frame blowups. And um, it was really a revelation. It was in the early days of talkies, uh, the novelty and excitement about talking films was to be able to hear actors speak in their natural voices. Uh, dubbing, uh, to the extent it was done, was considered cheating. You know, you really wanted to hear the actors uh, say their own words. And so for a few years, the studios, which made a ton of money, half their revenue was coming from overseas. And uh, in the silent days, all they had to do were you know, change the, the uh, intertitles. Uh, but here it was a little more complicated. So there was a brief period, didn't last too many years, but uh, Universal Spanish language version of Dracula was probably one of the most ambitious uh, one of these uh, productions. Some were done, most were in Spanish, some were done in French and German as well, but most of them were Spanish because that was the largest overseas market with so many countries uh, uh, speaking the Spanish language. And it, uh, so it got Hollywood over the hump during a very difficult time. Uh, this was, 1931 was the worst year of the Great Depression. And so they needed to maintain every revenue stream they could. They couldn't just write off the, the foreign market. And uh, the producer of the Spanish version uh, was, uh, his name is Paul Koner, and he was assumed to be the heir apparent to Universal. He was Carl Lemley Sr.'s uh, protege, and everybody assumed he would simply take over the reins of the studio when, when Uncle Carl was going to retire. But uh, Lemley surprised everybody by choosing his his son, his 21-year-old son, uh, Julius, who he gave the reins of the studio as a birthday present. Um, and um, Junior Lemley uh, uh, adopted the name Carl Lemley Jr. And uh, as a result, and uh, Conor wasn't that happy about it because he wanted to do Dracula. He originally wanted to use Conrad Veidt, which was a really interesting idea. Um, uh, Conor was... Uh, he was from, from Austria, not, he was from Czechoslovakia, and 
later became a, a agent for most of the European talent in Hollywood. He represented everybody. He represented Veidt for a while and uh, Greta Garbo and uh, so many others. And uh, he felt really stung. Um, and so his version of, of Dracula was going to upstage the American version. And uh, he did this, uh, I, I think he did up, upstage it uh, to, a, to a fair degree, mostly because he, was, he and his crew were able to watch the rushes every day. And uh, they worked on the same sets at night, all night long. And uh, Koner had another major reason he wanted to do the film. He had fallen in love with uh, the Spanish ingenue actress uh, Lupita Tovar, who he had already uh, produced a vehicle for her called uh, the, uh, the Cat Creeps, based on the old uh, Universal film and the stage play, The Cat and the Canary. Oh, yes. And he had fallen in love with her, and he, she was ready to just to call it quits and go back to Mexico because didn't, she didn't really see any future in uh, English-speaking Hollywood from uh, 1931 on. And uh, he used Dracula to keep her there long enough to uh, propose to her, and they had one of the longest and happiest uh, marriages in Hollywood history. Um, I met her in her 90s. She held on until the age of 106. Just an amazing, amazing lady. And uh, uh, I, w I was just so happy. I met a lot of these people when these movies were at the very limits of living human memory. And there were so many people who never gave oral histories or even interviews. Um, even major uh, figures like uh, you know, Todd Browning, one of the biggest names in horror history, he never gave a retrospective interview. And he was really, uh, he didn't like to talk about his, his career. And he, he had a lot of, uh, he had a lot of grudges and he was, he was, he was kind of bitter. Even that would have been interesting to hear about directly from him. Um, Koner was going to give an interview about the Spanish Dracula and about Todd Browning. And it was going to be for American Cinematographer Magazine. This is the year before I started working on Hollywood Gothic. And uh, unfortunately, Koner had a stroke and he died a few weeks before that interview was going to take place. And, uh, but later in the year, I did uh, contact uh, Lupita and... We, uh, we, we enjoyed uh, contact for many years afterwards. Uh, it was always delightful to see her uh, going to the fan conventions and, and appearing on television. And uh, uh, just, uh, it's like getting into a time machine with some of, the, <laughs> some of these folks I, uh, I got to know. You know, it is interesting you brought, you know, it is kind of a bittersweet, I mean, the fact that the, the, especially with the Spanish version of Dracula, it's, you know, it was considered lost for so long. And uh, and I the first time I saw it, I just thought how amazing the the atmosphere of the film was. Even I mean, even compared to you know, the Bela Lugosi Dracula, I just felt in in some ways it just the the pacing and the atmosphere and even the the acting was just it had a another otherworldly quality to it that I thought the the Lugosi I mean it still had, but it just it really it really is a shame that. It was, you know, it, it took so long for it to, to finally be unearthed and, mm -hmm. and, and brought back to cinema. And I do think that it's it's great that we, we were able to recapture some of that. But, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the actors involved in it, you know, really could, you know, they really, I think, had, had that film been out in the public eye without being lost for so long, those actors would have gotten a lot of recognition for the talent that they had at that time. 
especially on that yeah, film. It, it uh, not all of them, you know, enjoyed making these films. Uh, another uh, one of the Dracula cast I got to know was uh, David Manners, and uh, he really resented the film. He he thought it was a terrible movie while he was making it. He insisted he never watched the film. I'm not sure I believe him on that, but uh, he people were constantly sending him uh, videotapes and and uh, and um, going so far as to somebody impersonated Bela Lugosi Jr. to get a meeting with him at his uh, retirement uh, community he lived in in Santa Barbara, and uh, under the the the, uh, the pretext that he wanted to learn more about his father and and uh manners just said well i thought your father was was kind of a ridiculous person I, he walked up and down the 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 sound stage uh, looking into a mirror uh, throwing his cape over his shoulder and saying i am Dracula." <laughs> yes and he uh and after a while he, he'd just throw some of these people out there was somebody he uh he just said you're not interested in me at all I'm just a surrogate for Bela Lugosi, as far as you're concerned, and and I, you know, he was he was right. Uh, uh, David was he was really a very interesting man. He was he was a Broadway actor. He was a novelist. Uh, very very interested in in uh, Eastern philosophies and religions, and you could talk to him about all kinds of terrific things. Uh, Dracula was just kind of a uh, uh, a sticking point. What, the most interesting thing he told me though was that people would ask him who directed Dracula, and he would say, well, I don't really know, because uh, Todd Browning was just uh, uh, a figure back in the shadows somewhere. All of my scenes in the film were directed by Carl Freund, the cameraman, and uh, that was kind of a revelation. Uh, huh. Browning did not make an easy transition to talkies. Um, you can see this in his first talkie over at uh, MGM, which had Lugosi in it. He may have been uh, screen testing him I mean, even at that early date, but uh, it's it's full of silences and the pacing is, is, is terrible. Uh, in the silent era, Browning could interact with you. I mean, he would just keep up a steady stream of uh, instructions to the uh, to the actors. Uh, he would have musicians on set. Uh, he was involved in all aspects of a film, writing the uh, the story, writing the titles being involved in the editing and with talkies the the various uh, uh, crafts and disciplines became segregated and unionized finally and uh, and browning just had to uh, kind of say action and cut and that was about it and uh but uh, we're probably never going to hear the complete story about what happened on the set of dracula paul coner could have told us and uh uh sadly uh, uh came within two weeks of telling us. I asked Lupita, uh, you know, could you give us any hints about what was going on? And she said, well, you know, of course, I met all these people and, uh, and, and, and watched them. And we were introduced to, you know, Browning and the, and the American cast, but uh, my English was non-existent at that point. Um, she, now I, she was a polyglot. She could speak five languages, you know, by, by the end of her life, which is really amazing. But, um, Back then, she had no idea what people were talking about, and um, they tended just to smile at her. She was very pretty, and <laughs> so she had a favorable uh, of almost everybody. And um, what was going on? Browning was supposed to direct five pictures for Universal, uh, and it's my 
strong suspicion that they got him believing they were going to get Lon Chaney along with him. Uh, Lemley Sr. gave the go-ahead to Dracula with the proviso that only Chaney would play, uh, would play Dracula because he was a, it was considered a very risky film. There had been no real supernatural monsters on the American screen. There were scary characters, you know, often played by Cheney in the silent days, but they were always human. They were always revealed to be human uh, or, you know, part of a plot to embezzle a fortune or, you know, steal an inheritance or something. And uh, this was different. And all the studios were nervous about doing it. They knew it had been very successful on stage, but would it make money? Would the public buy it? And uh, they did. It was a major hit. Dracula and Frankenstein are probably responsible for saving Universal from insolvency. Uh, all the studios were teetering on the edge. It was a very risky time, 1931. And uh, I think the fact that it was such a fear-filled year had something to do with so many of our classic horror icons taking root that year. Uh, the films were produced or released, uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Todd Browning's Freaks. Uh, and you can find within these characters kind of the building blocks of everything else that came later in uh, scary entertainment. There's, now, with uh, that, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> with that being said, you know, the 30s, 31, the Depression, all of these fantastic films coming out, you know, took everybody's mind off of in saving. See something like that happening now to save the theaters. Do you see any new monsters on the horizon? I don't know. I think we're going to probably see more. Um, paranoid forms of horror, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the intruding outsider, the, um, the, we've seen this sort of thing building, uh, you know, ever since uh, 9-11. Um, what's going to happen to movies? I'm, I'm not sure. It is a very scary time. And before I forget, let me comment on your tattoo, because it reminds me of the Cuban Missile Crisis oh. days. It's the fallout shelter side, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it's a radiation symbol. <laughs> Okay. Yes. <laughs> there I am. Okay. The, uh, the, the fallout shelter really kind of took uh, the place of Dracula's crypt for, for a while, I think, when I was a kid. Um, but uh, what's going to happen to the... My, my uh, whole professional background before I started writing about film was, was in the theater. And uh, it's been a big part of my life uh, uh, for the last, uh, you know, 40 years or so. And it's in danger of actually becoming extinct. It's, uh, it's, it's really frightening, and I um, hope we're going to see some um, new developments, new kinds of theater, perhaps uh, multimedia uh, experiments of the kind we haven't seen before. Um, but uh, I do, um, oh, I got, I got a T-shirt from uh, a West End uh, uh, theatrical charity that just says, the show must go on. I need to wear that on, on screen. And, and, you know, the monster show must go on as well. Mm -hmm. No matter it what will. happens, uh, I, I have to tell you, it will. It your the theater thing. It I feel like it will. It's been doing this for a long time. Video games have been people. I'm 40, so that I've been saying this for Jesus 20 years now. Say just the way the games have gotten cinematic is that I was even saying you know a decade or so ago. Why and I quit. I quit going to the theater. I don't care why. I can play. I can pay $30 for a movie and a bucket of popcorn, 50 bucks total a night, or I can go and pay 50 bucks and buy Morrowind and get 300 hours of entertainment and never have to worry about it. But it's, and I just say that to say things are evolving. 
because of this, what we've seen going on, like your background in theater, I have hope for you. You said things are going to change and morph and evolve, and it's doing that. It The show must go on. I think you're right. It's just not going to be, it's certainly not going to be what people think it's going to be, but that will, it will carry on it will through patrons and it'll just, it'll be underground <laughs> just the way it's always been. It'll be underground and it'll be. Well, I, I think we'll be seeing a two tiered kind of theater where uh, people will have to spend top dollar to be in very small spaced out audiences in, you know, live auditoriums. And the rest of us are going to watch things streaming. Yeah. Um, I mean, get get used to everything. Um, I'd rather be on the road, actually uh, meeting people in in bookstores and at, you know at colleges. Uh, but uh, it looks like Zoom is going to be um, you know a major part of my my the way I talk to uh, my, my my public from now on. Um, monsters, though, I think will persist in the movies, though, because over the years they've just become more and more central. They used to be, you know, uh, these kinds of movies used to be the, the B pictures, the C pictures, the, Z, the D pictures. And you couldn't even find titles like uh, Dracula or Frankenstein or directors' names like James Whale and Todd Browning in cinema history books when I was a kid. I mean, that's one of the reasons I uh, wanted to write about these people. Um, I, I couldn't find anything about them to read. And, but this... Uh, you know, those, those early horror films just brought out this dormant impulse toward the fantastic and the frightening and the uh, wondrous and impossible and uh, that had uh, been part of the European cinema at the very beginning, but uh, had a delayed uh, uh, progression in, in America. Now, if you look at the, the biggest grossing movies of all time, they tend to be summer blockbusters with some aspect of of science fiction or horror or the fantastic or or uh, inc incredible uh, creature effects uh, this is uh, central now to what the cinema has become so i don't think it will be um, it will be dropped um, i think we'll probably be seeing a lot a lot more animated films if uh, you know if live production uh, continues to be difficult um, it, it's amazing how much of uh, the space the cultural space that used to be uh, occupied by uh, Broadway musicals uh, is now occupied by animated musical films, you know, most of them from Disney. And it's, it's a really a very natural medium. Uh, there have not been too many uh, animated horror films, but uh, I don't see why there shouldn't be. Agreed. Do you have a favorite modern horror film in the last decade or so? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, there are so many sub-genres that you can almost have to say, okay, of of this subgenre, you know, uh, you know, what is your favorite? But uh, I was uh, I was very taken with uh, uh, Hereditary last year. I thought it was uh, kind of extraordinary in that uh, you know horror movies like like detective fiction, you know, they're usually all about death, but nobody has to deal with death on an emotional level or a personal level. Uh, nobody ever mourns. Maybe there's somebody who wears a veil to a funeral and, and uh, then it's on with uh, on with the gumshoe story or the you know but uh death doesn't have much of an impact hereditary just kind of threw all that out the window and it was just a harrowing depiction of of uh, grief and loss on a on an american family and uh tony collette really she she was nominated she really deserved an oscar i think for that uh, 
for that role. It's the kind of film you don't want to talk about too much. You just want to tell people to go see it because there are some uh, major spoilers uh, uh, that could too easily be revealed to you. But uh, it kind of said, wow, you know, horror movies can be about real things as well as uh, 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 the supernatural. I mean, it's, it's, it, it was a very ambitious film. It was kind of uh, trying to be like the long day's journey into night of the horror genre or something and uh, had a terrific cast, absolutely wonderful ensemble cast. And uh, um, I've recommended it. Uh, not everybody has appreciated my recommending it after they uh, <laughs> experienced it because it is, uh, it is quite a roller coaster. And, uh, but uh, it, it certainly it pushed back the, the definitions and the parameters of you know, what, uh, what a scary movie can be like. You have any? What was? What's your favorite horror fiction? I mean, obviously, I can assume that you were a fan of Bram Stoker's Dracula, but what? What else are you a fan of? Did you get into any of the pulp writers? There is a darkness that thrives in the corners of every human mind. Can you feel its tendrils spreading out towards you, just out of sight? Face your fears in the dark corner Z. Featuring weird fiction and unsettling illustrations designed to get your heart racing and your imagination running wild. Find us now at the dark cornerz.limitedrun.com. Yeah, I um I was I was a very precocious reader, uh, and I was reading um, on the college level almost by the time I was you know uh, in the sixth grade or something like that. So I was reading all kinds of stuff I probably shouldn't have. I it was in the sixth grade that I read uh, Psycho by Robert Block, and I read it the day before I saw the movie, which oh. probably was not the greatest thing to do. <laughs> so uh, I am not one of those people who will ever have the experience of, uh, uh, you know, having Hitchcock's Psycho uh, wash over me with, uh, w without a clue as to what was going to happen. But uh, I, I loved, after that, I just loved, I looked for everything Robert Block wrote, all of his pulp stories and, and, and his novels. Ray Bradbury was a, a, a big influence. Um, uh, Harlan Ellison, who was also uh, you know, a borderline, uh, he was a science fiction writer, but uh, he was very well-respected in the horror genre as well, uh, was uh, another uh, uh, one of my idols, and he later became a personal uh, you know, a teacher and, and uh, mentor to me, which was kind of mm -hmm. amazing. And I, uh, I didn't make I, I wrote science fiction novels for a while, and I didn't make much of a distinction when I was growing up between, uh, you know, between the genres. You know, it was all, you know, kind of fantastic storytelling. Telling. When I, I interviewed uh, Forrest Ackerman for one of my books, and he said that uh, he had consulted back in the 50s with the Los Angeles Public Library, and they didn't know how to uh, organize and catalog uh, all of they're, they're, what was science fiction, what was horror, what was this or that, and uh, he uh, recommended that they simply start a section called Improbabilia. <laughs> and I don't know if they took him up on it, but I thought that was, uh, that was, that was, fairly, uh, that was fairly apt. Um, if it was imaginative and exciting, uh, I, uh, I, I, I was there for it. I, I, I just, I, I inhaled books, I inhaled movies, you know, uh, I inhaled television. I, I just, it was, it was all just this wonderful continuum and, uh, pretty much still, uh, still that way, even in uh, my advanced, uh, state of life. Well, David, I think we've kept you long enough. If no one has anything left for Mr. Scott. 
I had a couple actually. All right, so we've we've asked you before in the yes. like where you see the horror monsters coming. I've probably already tipped my hand that I'm a video gamer and stuff. But one of my favorite franchises is Metal Gear, and in this series, there is a recurring theme of the use of nano machines and nanotechnology. Well, Michael Crichton or Crichton, however the hell you pronounce it, wrote a book called Prey. Crichton. It, I think it was a it's, couple of decades ago. Yes, sir. Well, well what? So you were you were asking about his name? It is Crichton. Yes. Okay. Crichton wrote a book called Prey that also Crichton, dealt yeah. with uh, nanotechnology, nanobots. Shit, that might have been a spoiler. So sorry anybody who heard that. But all right, in the flight of the fact that H.P. Lovecraft has now entered the public domain, which isn't that coincidental that we now see Hollywood coming out with all these Lovecraft films because it's in public domain and they don't have to pay any. Regardless, with Lovecraft being in public domain and all of his, you know, the horrors beyond description, you know, for lack of a better term, we call them Lovecraftian, just unknown, unseeable mm -hmm. horror. And in light of current situation going on do you see that as the coming trend for like how horror monsters evolve is the unseen yeah it's kind of i i'm fascinated with uh, lovecraft country because they uh i do a pretty good job of not showing you too much um and you're you're kind of always completing the hideous image in your own mind and that's a you know, that's that's why horror has always been a great uh it's been great for uh radio drama or just telling stories around the campfire because the thing in the back of your head that uh, scares the hell out of you uh, is not necessarily what scares somebody else. So it's, it's a, it's a very personal thing. And so the, this, Angelique, I'm sorry to dealing with sir. stories about, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> dealing with un, when you're dealing with unseen horrors, you know, you're uh, it's a very, very fertile uh, ground because it's very participatory. You are making the story happen as much as the storyteller is making it happen. You're completing the thing, you know, in the back of your head. You know, in some ways, though, it seems like, it seems that, especially in film, writers have to, they have to be skilled at their craft to kind of pull that off effectively. I think that so many movies seem like they just, they want to show you the, you know, you see the monster coming in full force. But one of my favorite movies of all time, Alien, you know, the, that whole 90% of that movie is getting a glimpse of what's stalking the crew the whole entire time. There's this horror <laughs> to it that, you know, when you finally see it at the end, I mean, certainly it lives up to the, the, the terror of it, but just the whole edge, I mean, the whole entire time you're on the edge of your seat because, you know, you, you have a glimpse of this monster in your, in your mind's building this, this creation. And uh, I think that, I think, We've, I think, as audiences, we've been, uh, we've been spoon-fed everything. It feels like for a lot of horror in the last decade or two, and then for horror films that actually take the time to, to force, kind of almost force you to participate in in imagining what that what that is. I think that's that's what made movies even like Hereditary stand out because you have to follow along with the plot, and all these things start getting kind of peppered in, and you're slowly pulled into the into the plot. I think that's what partially makes that, that movie so effective outside of, you know, the, the other things you'd mentioned earlier. Radio drama. It's all about radio drama. It's, yeah, I love how you mentioned that. <laughs> well, no, it's, I, I think Val Luton probably knew, uh, uh, knew this kind of instinctively about radio drama and why he kind of adapted that technique to his films. Uh, I'm going to be introducing uh, next Friday, October 2nd, I'm going to be introducing four films on Turner Classic Movies 
from the book, and one of them is Cat People. And I love that movie. Oh, it, that's it. And uh, and then uh, well, it's going to be Dracula, Cat People, House on Haunted Hill, and The Haunting. And The Haunting oh. kind of brings the whole thing full circle because Robert Wise was a, a protege of, of Val Luton, and he said he intended The Haunting as a as a homage to uh, uh, you know to the master uh, uh, Val Luton. And uh, so it's it's fun to see those. It's it's a quadruple bill. It's not quite a double bill. But uh, there films. There's some films that need to be need to be paired, you know, together. But uh, uh, both the haunting. You never actually see a ghost, but you know they're there. You absolutely are convinced that they're there. And um, it, it's the one you know misstep with uh, Jaws, a film I just. Uh, otherwise just love but you saw too much of the mechanical shark at the very end and it just blew it because uh there was no cgi i mean it was state of the art for what they did but it it was not totally convincing and um and i wonder uh if spielberg had done it later with a little more technical uh possibility and potential what uh, he might have done with it but uh but uh yes the thing you're anticipating bram stoker knew this with dracula his Dracula is an offstage character for most of the book. People are talking about him, worrying about him, anticipating him. But uh, it just makes his uh, brief appearances, you know, all the more, all, all the more effective. And uh, uh, that's that's a real gift. Not every filmmaker can can pull that off. Uh, uh, you know, Hitchcock could do it. Uh, Val Luton could do it. Um, Robert Wise certainly could do it. And uh, I think you know we've probably had enough CGI. Uh, we you can do it. You can show anything on screen. You can create any the, the most realistic impossible things. You can you can just do it. And uh, I think the time has come maybe to pull back a bit and use it more. Uh, uh, I, I was watching uh, Sleepy Hollow, the Tim Burton film, a few weeks ago, and it was kind of at the beginning of you know the CGI CG, CGI. Uh, era and it's used very sparsely and you're you're not really um, aware that uh, you're watching a special effect you really really buy the uh, every everything you're you're shown and it's uh, used almost painterly in a painterly way that's just it's 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 a great film and if there's another uh, uh, if there's going to be a fright favorites too uh, you know, Sleepy Hollow is certainly one of the films I'd like to include in it before we let you go send everybody somewhere sell us something where can we go to get your book or go to see you or whatever where do you want to send people where, well you can you can uh, sit at home and watch me on <laughs> turner classic movies on friday night <laughs> each friday night in october they're going to uh, do a, a quadruple feature and uh only the first uh friday is going to be directly tied into my book although some films from the book will find their way into the scheduling later. But uh, it looks like it's going to be a, a fun night. Uh, I'm not doing my bookstore appearances, but I've made arrangements with the the great uh, horror emporium, Dark Delicacy in Burbank, mm -hmm. California. Uh, and you can find them at darkdel.com, darkdel.com. And uh, I live nearby, and I'm coming in as often as they ask me, you know, to uh, do personalized inscriptions for people who are uh, out of state or, uh, or just out of town who are ordering them. And uh, they've been doing quite a brisk business. Uh, I uh, didn't know what to expect, you know, with uh, but book sales are actually 
they, they've done very well during uh, during COVID. People are uh, aren't going to the movies, but uh, apparently are are uh, going to Amazon and other uh, online sources and getting uh, uh, getting reading material, which uh, is always a good thing. And uh, so please, uh, you know, patronize dark delicacies, and I will uh, I will personalize an autograph for you. And and uh, maybe next year I'll uh, be somewhere a little closer. Let's hope. Love to see. I'm definitely setting my DVR. That's for sure. <laughs> I had one question for you before we let you go. I asked this of all of our, our guests. Um, I'm the fiendish foodie here at Monsters, Madness, and Magic. So I'd like to know, what's your go-to movie snack? My go-to movie snack is, um, it's, it's popcorn. It, it really is. I, li- I, li- I like it plain, um, without, uh, not dripping with butter. But uh, I, uh, uh, I, I go through way too much. And it, the, the, the Cineplexes nearby have been having for the past couple of years, I've had these unlimited refills, and uh, I won't, <laughs> you test I the won't admit how how much. Uh, and then they they'll even let you refill a bag and take it home. Oh, oh. <laughs> so generous! These the theaters. I'm jealous. They close. I hope they will reopen and uh, do this again sometimes. Okay. But uh, I'm getting used to watching, uh, uh, you know, streaming first run things at home, and it's kind of there. Not every movie needs to be seen on a big screen, you know. Thank you. Uh, I would I would say uh, maybe most movies are uh, better in a more intimate uh, kind of thing. But Thank you. there are the films that require an audience. They require, uh, you know, a size of presentation. Mm-hmm. There are things you only want to see in IMAX if they're available in IMAX. But um, like I said, I like I like storytelling, no matter how it's delivered. And uh, between covers uh, on a on a DVR or a VCR or a, Blu-ray machine. Um, just keep it coming. <laughs> well, David, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We thank you so much for coming on. And thank you. This is great. Our doors are always me. open. I'd love to, to come you. back again. We we barely scratched the surface. You realize God. what a what a dense kind of topic. Dude, yeah, you could talk horror and you talk radio drama. I do audio drama, horror, audio drama. So I mean, we could talk for weeks on end about that. We could exhaust every hard drive <laughs> and server space for podcasts just on that you come back anytime and let's talk anytime you let's, want really let's 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 do it again this is All great right. we'll thank stay you. in touch david thanks yes. so much you have a good night take care thank you good night